0: Hello and welcome back to Hif Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy Hif Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Michael Connolly, interviewed live by bestselling author Mark Billingham at the 2022 Theakston Alpecule Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion between crime fiction's most celebrated authors.
1: And, uh, and as you just heard, welcome to this very special, uh, special guest event uh, here at the East Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, sponsored by Orion. My name is Mark Billingham, and I'm thrilled uh, tonight to be talking to a friend and colleague who is not only one of the best-selling crime writers in the world, he is also one of the most acclaimed by readers, by critics, and by fellow crime writers. Over the last three decades, he's written 36 novels, which have sold more than 80 million copies worldwide. With the exception of the Nobel Peace Prize, he's won just about every award possible. The most recent to which, of course, he garnered last night when he received the awards for an outstanding contribution to the genre. We'll be talking about that contribution tonight, the phenomenal series of books, obviously the TV shows, and of course, about his most famous creation, Harry Bosch, who features alongside Rene Ballard in his latest novel, The Dark Hours. This is a conversation I'm hugely looking forward to, and I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and say that you are too. In recent years, when festival goers have filled in questionnaires afterwards and asked after, who they would most like to see, he's always top of the list. As he should be, because in my not-so-humble opinion, he is pound for pound, quite simply, the finest crime writer on the planet. Ladies and gentlemen, my honor. <laughs> I'm done, that's it. I've got nothing else. I'm done too, that's it. Okay, good. thank you very much. Um, so listen, we've got, we got loads to talk about, Mike, but I want to start by going back a bit. We nearly lost you to the world of building construction. The heady world of building construction. And if it hadn't been for you going to see a Robert Altman movie, that's what you might be doing today. Tell me about that.
0: Um, yeah, I was, I was going to college in the uh, a subset of the engineering school. They actually called it building construction sciences, oh, okay. which I didn't know was a science till I got there. But um, yeah, I actually had a class called uh, concrete one hundred and one. So, <laughs> so I it was uh, not doing that well. I wasn't that engaged, and uh, I would go to the student union and watch movies because they uh, would have a discussion afterwards with uh, someone from the film school, and. Uh, So I saw The Long Goodbye, which was, I think, a 1973 movie. I saw it, like, in 74, 75. And uh, and I had been a pretty voracious reader of crime fiction, but I had never read Raymond Chandler. I don't really know why. That never came up on my radar. But I saw the movie based on a book from the 50s, but it was set in contemporary L.A., 70s. And I just loved the movie, so I went to the store, bought the book, had Elliot Gould as uh, the iconic uh, Private Eye Marlo. and Marlow, uh, and I still have that book I bought, um, and, and he's on the cover the movie tie-in type thing. And I loved the books, and then I went back to the store and, and got the rest of uh, Chandler's novels, read them, stopped Going to Concrete 101, no. and uh, I just read the books, and I read them a second time, and then I drove, it was a five-hour drive home, drove home to tell my parents I'm not going to build houses, I want to try to build stories. Uh, I didn't. I didn't say it in that way. I wasn't that flowery back then. But uh, but basically, it was a big discussion because uh, it's a big change of path.
1: Were they disappointed?
0: Well, that's what I was bracing for. That's because you know. So it was uh, you know, five-hour drive the whole time. It's building up on me like, what's my dad? My dad's going to say you got to do something where you can make a living. Not not such a long shot. And he did say what well, your the path you're choosing is a long shot. But then. He said so what we have to do here is think of um you know how do we get you to the position that you can take that shot and uh, so it was total support which i uh i should have expected but i really did not i was very nervous about it
1: well the other the other story i love from from back then which that uh, if anybody was there last night when michael received his award, val mentioned which is the, that story of when you were 16 and you you're driving home from work, or walking home from work, whatever you see, and you see this guy hide something in a bush, and it turns out to be a gun. Uh, and that's where, that was your first sort of involvement with the police, in you know, any way, shape or form. But the bit of the story that wasn't mentioned last night, was that you then you found the gun, and you followed the guy. You actually followed the guy to a bar, at yeah. 16. A guy you'd just seen plant a gun
0: in a bush. Yeah, well I knew he was unarmed, so... <laughs> <laughs> so but, um... Yeah, there <laughs> it is. It's weird. Nice. You can look back at, at your life, and you can really look at it in literary terms, or like I said, flowery. I didn't I, subconsciously. I didn't know this at that time. I've come to believe this now, but I was already reading crime fiction because my mother liked it, and I was getting her hand-me-downs, and um, you know, and so forth, and, and expanding on what I was reading. So I was already interested in. It. And I think what connects so many of us to these books is that they're, they're usually about a man or woman who's, you know, uh, has to reach a point where they have to step up or step back. You know, the stakes are high, um, they're pursuing some kind of hidden secret, and they step up and they follow the secret. And so I'm not saying I knew any of that at that time, but it was like this moment, I'm holding a gun, first time I ever held a gun in my life, and I decided to follow that guy. So I think it was like my early reading of crime fiction that kind of said, this is subconsciously
1: um, this is like one of those moments and it's like a noirish conversation a first-person voiceover in your head going he fought, he got the gun out of the bush he followed the guy to the bar Are you the gats. Of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it does that, that does demonstrate to me a kind of curiosity that I think would have been wasted in construction yeah, and yeah. Sort of had you had you, you mark out as the journalist you would become do you know yeah. What I think yeah
0: yeah no I think it was, it's one of those things that if I didn't follow that guy, or didn't see him hide the gun, it was uh, it would be like, the seat would suddenly empty, really, eerie. because I had to have had that happen for me to do what I do now.
1: Well, jumping forward a bit, you did become a journalist, and, and so you're a crime reporter on the LA Times uh, for many years. Now, you maintained what, to me, seems like the most incredibly punishing work schedule. You know, at least a book a year, sometimes two books a year, umpteen TV shows, which we'll talk about. Uh, in a minute. Uh, so do you think the time you spent as a journalist stood you in good stead for that in terms of discipline and deadlines and stuff or are you just... Oh
0: yeah, yeah, I mean on every, every level. Uh, but yeah, work ethic for sure. Um, and uh, the other aspect would be uh, the entree I had to the world. You might remember my father said "I have to. we have to think about how, how to get you into a place. To take that shot, and I should back up and say I didn't say I want to be a writer. I said I wanted to be a crime novel, a crime writer. I wanted to write crime novels, and so it was his idea that I go back to school and switch majors to journalism. And he said, you know, you get a press pass, you you can get into these police stations, you can get into the world you want to write about, Um, and so that was like great advice. And so, yeah, I, I was reporter for 14 years, 12 of them was covering courts or crimes or some something, and it got me into the place where I could take that shot.
1: But where was where was the spark for Bosch? Where did Bosch come
0: from? He really came from all over, because uh, when I was, I talked to so many detectives, you know, when I was uh, um, a police reporter, um, and, you know, I like to think I took a lot from a lot of them, but there's also the, you know, fictional movies, uh, you know, all that. You, you know this, it all... It all goes into the blender, you know, and, and that's where the uh, inspiration comes from. There was one uh, detective uh, he was a sergeant in charge of a homicide squad who, uh, I, he was one of those guys who was a calling, he, and he was a Vietnam vet, and he, and he uh, really paid for being emotionally involved in his cases, and I can see that. So I think if I had to pick a detective that was most inspirational into real life, uh, he's passed away now, but a real, it was a real-life homicide detective. Um, and then, but I still took a lot from lots of
1: people. And why, why Hieronymus Bosch? I mean, for, any, for anybody that hasn't read a, a Bosch novel, and if not, why not? Uh, Harry Bosch is Hieronymus Bosch. Why, was there a moment when you just, I'm going to him Bosch? I mean, why, I mean, I know you're a fan of Hieronymus Bosch. I know you've got paintings and stuff, but his totally. Was that, that it? You just pricks, it? not paint. Oh, Prints, obviously. <laughs> 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 yeah. Just a little clip frame. Yeah.
0: So, but why? Why that name? Well, I mean, I studied the genre as we do when we're going to try to do this. You, you read voraciously, but you also read analysis and critics and critiques and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, so you pick up the stuff like that the, your the person... Your detective should have a, a code, and um, you know, never miss a chance to say something about character, and that would include a name. And so, I, like, I thought long and hard about it. Like, actually, in the first novel, he was originally named Pierce. No first name, just Detective Pierce, and that was because I, uh, again, it comes back to Raymond Chandler. I read an essay he wrote about how the detective has to be able to pierce all veils, all levels of society, and pierce this, pierce that. So I called him Pierce. And then at some point, point, I don't remember why, I was reminded of Bosch's paintings, and I had studied them just by happenstance. I took an art class, um, I mean, I'm sorry, it was a humanities class, and we studied art in the humanities class. And, we, and the teacher, the professor happened to be fixated on a Ronald's Bosch, so we spent about a month analyzing his paintings. And you know, this is before internet, and it's so easy to find uh, information about that painter. He's pretty obscure at the time I studied him. Uh, never heard of him, never seen anything until I had that class. And so I thought, you know, call this guy, Heronis Bosch, and some people will get it, and they'll get the correlation, Garden of Earth and Delights, Los Angeles. You know, the paintings are all about the world, gone, uh, the wages of sin, world gone wrong, chaos. And uh, and so some people will get that, and then if they didn't get it, they'll say, like, where do you get this crazy name? I might want to read on and see if it's explained. So I just thought it was like one of those win-win situations.
1: Okay. Now I, I first interviewed you over twenty years ago, um, before I was published. I was sitting very nervously in an office with, with a dictaphone, taking asking you questions, uh, and this was around the time of *Angels Flight*, I think, so uh, sixth Bosch book. And you said then that back then, that writing about Harry was getting harder as the books were getting darker. So all these books on from that. Is that still the case, or? It Has the introduction of characters like Barr made it easier so that you're looking at how other characters see him? Has that kind of made, made the process easier? Yeah, I mean,
0: that was in Bristol, right? No, no, it was in London. Oh, it was in okay. London. Alright. Um, anyway, um, no, one, no one saved me and saved Harry Bosch is that I gave him a daughter. And that changed his past and changed his outlook at the universe and the world. And as it does to anyone who becomes a parent, and uh, the books were getting exceedingly dark and then he discovered he had this five-year-old daughter. You know, the books were about um, him going into the abyss and it's about him trying to make himself bulletproof so no one could get to him, so he could carry out this mission. And then he um, once, uh, on the last page of the book, he finds out he's a father and that changed everything because now he can really be gotten to. And, um, and it just made him more human and more connected to the to the world and that brought the light in.
1: That's lost light, that yeah. book, right? Yeah. Uh, well, we will talk about the new book, uh, The Dark Hours, which I don't mean to tell anyone is, is fabulous in more detail later on. And what that does is team up Harry Bosch and Renee Ballard again. Uh, she was introduced five years ago something like that in, yeah. in the late show. And how far into that book did you go, I'm going to team her up with Harry, this is going to work, I'm going to put them together? Well,
0: I knew right away because what was going on was um, I, Harry's in real time, I've given a Vietnam history. I said into the books. He's born in 1950, and, um, you know, so being the ju- former journalist, still feel like a journalist. Um, you know, when I want the books to have the hallmark of accuracy, and I knew I was going to start straining credibility when this guy is seven years old and chasing murderers. So I knew uh, I had to move him kind of into like the wise old man mentor role, and I. The timing wasn't right to make it his daughter. His daughter is too young, and I didn't want to like play with time. So I wanted the books to be realistic, so I didn't want to jump her five years older or ten years older and she's a detective, so I, I brought in Ballard. And I knew from the beginning I'd read a book that only she was in, but then uh, she would cross paths with Harry, and they would have this relationship where almost like father-daughter, but definitely mentor he would he would like try to pass on what he knows because he sees himself and his dedication or, or mission, the idea of mission in her. So he sees a kindred soul and sees I can pass on whatever my legacy is to her.
1: And even though Bosch Bosch was a kind of uh, you know, based on several detectives you knew and all that kind of stuff, Balor was was directly Based on the detective you do, so so tell us yeah. about Mitchy Roberts.
0: Yeah, and then that's the the second part of that question is when when something drops in your lap, and okay, it's, and it's really good, you you know how to use it. You know, it's kind of like that story I tell uh, about 20 years ago. I went to a L.A. Dodgers baseball game, started talking to the stranger next to me. But he says he's a defense attorney. And I said, uh, "Where, you know, where's your office?" Because there's 40 courthouses in LA, and I I know something about where you and I know people in common. And, and he says, "I work out of my car," and it's like that was something dropped in my lap, and like, you know, the Lincoln lawyer was born. Um, Mitzi Roberts was is a homicide detective for the LAPD. Just recently, she was put in charge of the cold case squad, and um, she was mentored much like the way Harry Bosch mentors, um, Ballard, she was mentored by a senior partner, who you know, Rick Jackson. Yeah. Um, and so I met her through him, because I've known him for many, many years. And uh, he, he retired, and I still need to have people in the, pl- the department to kind of tell me what's going on politically-wise, politically, politically wise, bureaucratic-wise, bureaucratic and also just, you know, how they work cases. And so I, I just really kind of started talking to her a lot in terms of research, and uh, you know, she she told me lots of stories about how difficult it is to be uh, a woman in uh, in a male-dominated uh, detective bureau. And it's like I got to write about this. So it's right here in front of me, and she and she'll give me everything I need. She'll cooperate fully, and and uh, you know, when you have something like that, you'd be a fool not to, uh, you know. Uh, Take that into your storytelling.
1: Are we are we going to see Renée Ballard on screen? Yeah,
0: I hope so. I think she'd be a, a great uh, character. Um, I I don't I can't say for sure what will happen, but um, hope
1: so. Okay. The, what what that does though, I think it continues this pattern pattern of yours in in the books, the introduction of Ballard, which is the way characters move between the stories. So minor characters in one book become major characters in another book, and there's this kind of Fictional mosaic and and you know uh, Mickey Haller and Jack McAvoy and Terry McCaleb right. and others, and it's a fantastic thing this this fictional universe, uh letting readers see how how people and events are connected. And I can't think of too many other writers who do that. And was it was it was that a decision or was it something that just happened accidentally, just sort of grew organically once you'd written a bunch of books, you went, yeah, he can be in that more than yeah. Bic- I mean,
0: it was doesn't doesn't it wasn't a master plan, <laughs> but, you know something happened I can't even remember how but you know eventually it came to me this would be pretty cool and it, it kind of harkens back to the piranhas bosch paintings which are lots of different things going on um not really related but they're on the same painting so they're related um and so I I always kind of had that in mind this idea that all things are connected on the same uh, as you said a mosaic or a canvas or something like
1: that you talked you talked about the, the issue of aging harry in real time uh, which is something a lot of writers, myself included, cheat sometimes. Um, and I remember you telling me once that you kind of hit upon, apart from the whole mentoring thing and, and bringing in you know, people like Rene Ballard and stuff, you hit upon the way you could deal with it. Well, it, you were, it was during the filming of the TV show, and you discovered something, something in a small town somewhere, where, uh, yeah, and you thought that's how I can do that. What was that? Remind me of that story.
0: Well, it, L.A. is a massive city, yeah. um, and, and there's uh, uh, a little town called San Fernando in the center of the San Fernando Valley. Now, the San Fernando Valley, if you ever saw it, would be Chinatown, is part of L.A. They <coughs> brought it in so they could get the water. But this little three square mile town called San Fernando said, "No, we want to be independent. We want to. We like having our own town, our own mayor, and all that stuff." And so they're there, and um, uh, we happen to be. They, they're very film friendly, so we were going to film a, a shootout scene for the TV show, and, and we were filming in San Fernando, and and one reason why they're film friendly is that they're a small police department that could use the money so when you shoot a uh, film and um, when you film in this town you gotta hire your cops as security and so we were you know one of those cops just came up to me and i just had bosh uh, he just read a book where Bosch quit and he said it's weird like you know it, it's a fictional character because i heard Bosch just uh, retired you know he could come work with us and, uh, <laughs> and then he i said i said <laughs> yeah you know, whatever and he goes like no we actually have we don't have the budget, and uh, you know, to to properly field a team of detectives. So, uh, th- to one of our three detectives is a volunteer, and then that's when I took him seriously. And then, you know, I I then wrote three books where he worked for San Fernando doing cold cases as a volunteer.
1: Okay, well, at this probably the time to talk about the TV, the TV adaptations. Then, so Bosch, Bosch Legacy, The Lincoln Lawyer, maybe hopefully, Renee Ballard all of which have been hugely successful. And again, looking back at that interview we did 20 years ago, at that time, Bosch was still in development, I think, you know, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, with Alan with Alan a Alan. screenplay by Ted Talley, who had just written Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And I think at that time with Harrison Ford attached as a, as a possible Bosch, did I make that up?
0: No, yeah, I mean, that, that was their plan, but um, Ted Talley wrote a really good script, but he wrote it, uh, it was 160 pages. And basically, a script is a minute a page and so it was rejected because they don't make uh, 160 minute cop movies you know and it would be way too expensive you know so Hollywood comes down to money so his script as good as it was was immediately rejected and then they hired a kid right out of college to write one that would be only 110 pages <laughs> and uh and but all these scripts were tailored for harrison ford um and but he kept rejecting them so which in the long run is great because I rather have right now I'm up to I think 78 episodes of Bosch, and you can really tell a character with that many hours uh, as opposed to a 110-minute movie.
1: But even back then, you were you were kind of nervy about it. I mean, it, it's obviously quite a big deal to see your you know your main guy transfer onto the screen, big or small. And obviously now Bosch has been brilliantly brought to life by Titus Welliver. It's hard not to think of Titus Welliver. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, Bosch is so fantastic. But we you we were all, dubious when you know, just before the TV show started.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, you just don't know. Although um, I was lucky because Harrison Ford kept rejecting things. Uh, you know, years go by. I'm still writing about Bosch. My uh, publishing profile, if you will, is, is growing, and so I finally reached this point where I didn't need. You know, I, I went to Hollywood mostly so I could get out of my day job. You know, because I wanted. You know, I. Like, by selling uh, a Bosch in the first round, a go-around to Paramount, hopefully for Harrison Ford, I was able to quit my day job and concentrate fully on being a novelist. And I think I, I could see a clear improvement in my books as soon as I wasn't going to work every morning and writing newspaper stories. Um, and so it was a deal with the devil that I'd still make again. I have no regrets about it, but I'm, I got lucky. They didn't make anything. And then by the time, um, they wanted to make something they had to do it my way or I wasn't going to do it you know uh, you know I had to, I made them sign contracts that every shot would be uh, a film would be taken in Los Angeles and not shipped to a, another state where you get tax deductions and things like that. It was you know I, I was able to control a lot. I got to say I was the one who said Titus Welver should be Harry Bosch and you know. So uh, I had I had all the leverage at that point, so it was it was a long journey, but it ended up being very much worth it. Um,
1: but you were wor- I think you were worried that you might not be able to write Bosch without seeing the actor who was playing Bosch. And has, is that the case? Do you see Titus well other than when you write the books?
0: No it's weird. I don't because um, <laughs> Bo- I mean, Titus is like 12 years younger than the Bosch. I'm writing about my books, so it, it's enough difference that I he has not intruded visually. I do hear him. He meets the books on the audio. You know, he does the uh, audio books. And he does a fantastic job on that as well. And, and just also from being involved in the show, his voice is really is what I'm hearing in my head when I'm writing Bosch. I just don't see him visually because I was writing about Bosch for like 22 years before he took the role. And, and so I have an image in my head.
1: And you are, you are always going to be closely involved with it because I know a lot of writers, uh, you know, in that position of we adapt, adapt your books to the screen. You go, I don't want to be involved. You know, there's that old story about you chuck your book over yeah. the wall, they chuck a bag of money over the wall, and you're running opposite directions. Right. Because if you don't get involved, it's kind of a win-win. If it turns out to be rubbish, you go nothing to do with me, yeah. and if it wins a hat full of Emmys, you go that was my book, you know. Yeah, it's you know, a kind of win-win exactly. thing. But you, you've always you've been very closely involved from the beginning.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it was where I was and. Life uh, I had spent. Uh, I think we started doing that in uh, the, the very beginning or beginning was 2012. So it was actually 20 years after I started writing about Harry Bosch, and I just I was too connected with that character. He was too important to me to say, you know, take him and best of luck to you. Um, I, I had to go along with it or I wouldn't make a deal. Okay. Well,
1: let's talk. Let's talk about the new book, The Dark Hours. Uh, so as I say, and Bosch. once again working together tell tell us a little bit about the story of the dark house
0: um it's funny i just finished the book where they're both in so that's in my head we'll talk about that at the end all right give (laughs) me a reminder about what the dark no i'm just kidding Uh, so everyone in the world we've been through a a rough couple of years you know with the pandemic uh, uh, in my country with the political strife with um, uh, a lot of uh, horrible police uh, controversies of, of killing people of the minority communities and so forth. And so it's, it's it's a very difficult time now to be a police officer. And from the standpoint of guys like us who write fiction, I mean, that's great because that's more challenges we can show our character. Um, but there is a, a component of what I do, which I think is journalism. I, I always feel like I'm still a, a reporter at heart. And so I wanted to, and I have this woman, Mitzi Roberts, who's in the middle of this, you know, and she's telling me about how so many people are now mailing it in. It's really hard to be a relentless, um, driven, mission-oriented uh detective or cop in, in this world right now and uh, to me like that was the starting point let me figure out a story that um without hitting anyone over the head kind of highlights that kind of
1: yeah it's how likely you wear it isn't it without yeah. hitting anybody over the head it's not it's very subtle you know that the, this police force is clearly in crisis right you know they're just reactive nobody wants to see yeah. them
0: you know people they park in the parking lots and, okay. and they don't control they just wait till they have to be told to respond to something. And, you know, that's that's a little capsule, but it says it all, I think. And, um, you know, so, and then, you know, as the writer, you got to step back and say, hey, you know what, I think a lot of people read these books because they don't want to read about COVID. You know, they, they want to escape from COVID, so now do I want to write a book about it? No, of course not. So, so I kind of write, a, uh, this book is set at the tail end, what we thought was the tail end. Um, and so there's references to it, but it's really kind of the... Uh, even though know, it's called The Dark Hours, it's, it's set in January of, uh, of this uh, last year and it's about like emerging from these dark times and, and hopefully this is uh, uh, a heroine who, who is, you know, someone we can follow out of darkness.
1: But it made, made reading it, I mean our, our police force is possibly not quite as in crisis as the, as the LAPD, but the, the Met Police are in massive trouble, I mean we've had our own George moment with the murder of a young woman Sarah Everard by a serving police officer and the, the head of the men has been resigned and all that kind of stuff but there aren't I don't think there are too many UK crime writers who are yet kind of wrestling with that it's clearly something we have to do but yours was the first book I've read that kind of dealt with that stuff fairly head on
0: well it's really I, I I only had to think about it for a few minutes because I didn't want to go against what I've been doing for almost 30 years mm-hmm. and Every one of my books is, is set in the year it's published, and I bring in stuff all the time. You know, I bring in 9/11. I bring in the Patriot Act. You know, good and bad stuff. I, I reflect on um, society, as, as, you know, without being didactic about anything. And so, what, why would I suddenly not do that? Uh, to me, it would be like a betrayal of what I've been working on. Well, there's
1: an amazing moment about three quarters of the way through the book where Ballard and Bosch watch live on TV, the attack on the Capitol. Uh, and again, it's not, you know, it's not my plosh or go off on a rant about it or anything, it's just history kind of happening. And there's something really weird and special about watching fictional characters interact with real moments of history. Um, and I really hope that continues into the next book because uh, I think you once said that if there was one word to describe Harry, it would be relentless. And if there was one word to describe Renee Ballard, it would be fierce. And I really want to see renee Ballard reacting to the roe versus wade being overturned right. Are we, might we see that in the next
0: book well yeah we might um, okay i mean not the next one because it was written before that happened okay that the next book's done um except for like copy editing so but it's you know that is exactly the type of thing that goes into my thing. but were you
1: writing the dark hours when the attack on the capital happened
0: yeah that was what was uh, again, it's one of those things. It's a kind of a no-brainer. I know I, I'm going to reflect what's going on, but I had already set this up because of the. It starts on New Year's Eve where uh, the LA has this like bizarre habit or a rit- ritual of people shooting guns in the air. Um, you know, it's like this American, you know, and the guns. Um, and I wanted to start the book of that, um, and it was only because the, the real detective Missy Roberts, said when she was in patrol, they would always be, park underneath a, a freeway overpass at midnight because they didn't want bullets raining down on them. I mean, and like when you hear a story like that, you go like, that's got to go in a book, you know, and uh, you know, so that's how the book starts with them underneath, a, a her underneath, in a car underneath an overpass and there's homeless and there's COVID and all that stuff. Um, but you know, when I started writing this book well before the attack in the Capitol, but I was already well into it, and it starts on uh, basically December 31st. So I'm writing the book, and that happens, and it's like, how do I not put that in the book? Am I going to write a book about that month, and that doesn't get mentioned? Are you kidding? You can't do that, so it had to go in.
1: And so aside from, obviously, that's the backdrop to the story. But in terms of the actual story, so, so Ballard... Teamed up with a cop who is one of these cops who is phoning it in to right. a degree, yeah. uh, are trying to catch a, a team of rapists called the Mid- Midnight Men, to, and and that then feeds into a a, a homicide case which which Bauer picks up which connects her with Bosch. Yeah. Oh there, I've done it. There okay. you go. That's <laughs> was, right there. No, I got. I mean, could you, you, you
0: expand you, on that? Mr. You know, <laughs> <Christ>. <laughs> you know, you follow things that that are of interest to you, and I keep mentioning people that I know you know. We, we, we circles and so forth but this guy who was used to be he's retired now but he was considered the sexual crimes expert for the LAPD and he he taught classes within the LAPD he taught Mitzi Robertsy it all gets connected I'm still friends with him um, and uh, he retired left the city has not been back to LA since he retired and has not stepped foot back in LA which is a very unhappy botch thing but I forgive him for that because he helps me with my books and he reads my manuscripts. And he started telling me once about, it's very rare, but when two like-minded uh, sexual attackers get together, and it's not like one-on-one makes two, it's usually one-on-one makes eight or something. It, 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 it increases their proclivity to do horrible things. And, and the psychology of it, and like he still has all his teaching A's from when he uh, uh, taught classes and so forth about this. They gave them all to me and I was just really fascinated about it. So I wanted to write about, you know, two rapists who found each other online and then decided to instead of fantasizing about it, do it. And
1: then this this homicide which comes out of this
0: this ritual which I've never
1: come across before, this thing on New Year's Eve, when at the stroke of midnight, hundreds and hundreds of people all across the city firing guns into the air. Yeah, why not? No what else, but uh, but this thing of then lead rain of people yeah. then being killed by the No, it's groups. actually it's
0: it's, uh, it's interesting because um, not that I'm defending this practice, but um, a bullet loses so much velocity, it you probably will not get killed. It probably won't even penetrate your your stall. and that's part of the story. It smart. It smart. It would hurt, and you'd have to go to the uh, yeah. ER for sure. But but there's not a crime novel. But now, that, there? I can't remember. There was a, <laughs> remember that show about the two guys who. Debunked this, They they debunked it, and other people have debunked this idea that you can be killed by a falling bullet. Oh, I'm sure it's happened. Like some people's heads are softer than others, I think. <laughs> well, and, you know, but, um But uh, but so the, anyway, that's that's the gimmick or the trick or whatever. The beginning that somebody is killed by a bullet, and initially they believe it's one that fell out of sky. But our uh, our detective Ballard is smart enough. To
1: Within a couple hours, and realised, now this was the setup." Okay. Um, now I know well, there are be, there is going to be time for questions. I probably should have mentioned that uh, we've got. We'll talk about another ten minutes, and then and then uh, we've got some roving mics. If you want to ask uh, Michael any questions, um, but I think I think readers want to know what's coming next. You mentioned the next book, which is called Desert Star, uh, another Bosh and
0: Ballad book. Could you
1: tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's
0: a little bit of a, a spoiler, but. Um, because this book ends, this book ends. Dark hours ends with with,
1: with Renee Ballard at something of a crossroads. Yeah, without giving crossroads, anything away. Crossroads. That's a good, good.
0: Right. A question. Yeah. Where, where does she go from here? And so, this um, again, stuff falls in your lap. You use it. Um, between dark hours and my next book, Missy Roberts was elevated to uh, head of the cold case unit, with, with a big asterisk attached to that assignment and they said you're the only detective on the cold case unit we want you to go out and recruit volunteers who will do it for no pay and so she she is you know retired detectives and people with skills people with, uh... sorry i'm spitting on myself um, people with genealogy skills and things like that and so she has put together this ragtag group of um, of investigators and they, they were just, there was a big story in the New York Times four days ago about how she caught a serial killer and, and killed four women in LA and she arrested them in Texas last Thursday. And she's the only detective. She's the only badge carrying. So like all these other volunteers <laughs> have had experience as detectives and cops. But when it comes to making a case, she's got to be everyone's partners because she, she's the sworn officer who will testify in court and things like that. So she set all this up. And this, I'm kind of riding with her as she's doing this and telling me about it. So what do you think the next book's about? I'm guessing that might be what Ballard is <laughs> doing. And who does she recruit? I couldn't. This, Harry yeah, this, chance. this old seventy two year old guy who's got a lot of experience and can't quit. So okay. that's what it's about. Well And she i t- I'll tell you one last part. She baits him and you know, he left the police under they didn't really like him. It was like get, get out I mean, he quit before they could shove him out the door. But she recruits him anyway and she says, you know, the regime has changed, there's different people, the environment's trying to change, You'll be, you, you're you okay, you can come back. But he's still hesitant and um, so she baits him with a, one of his unsolved cases. She said, the first, I got seven, seven murder books from one of your cases that you never saw. It was sitting on the desk in the cold case unit and that desk is yours if you come back. So he's lured back into working on his kind of white whale case.
1: Well, I'm guessing you're already working on the book after that.
0: Uh,
1: and Maddie is, Maddie's what? In, the books, in, the, in terms of the books, Maddie's a, a, still at the police academy. Right? She's she, she about now in ready? This,
0: in this new one she just comes out as, oh, okay. as, a, as a rookie. Okay,
1: okay, so is that where the series is kind of headed?
0: Um, if I
1: stay alive long enough. It oh, <laughs> yeah. We'll get to Try that. to bring it down, Mike. Why yeah. don't you? Um, <laughs> Before we we go to questions, you said to me when we were just out there, are you going to ask me a question about what the dumbest thing is I've ever done? Uh, Which I don't remember asking you, but if you told me I did, I'll believe you. So I am going to ask you again, just before we go to questions.
0: Mr. Connolly, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? Well, I could say was following that guy when I was 16. No, no, I think
1: you've done something far. Okay, how
0: much time do we have? Oh, 10 minutes. Okay, this was a uh, again when I was 16. So I, I worked in this grocery store, I was like a bad boy and stuff. And at the end of the day, uh, you had to get a bunch of mop buckets together, and you, uh, all the bad boys would go down the aisles mopping the floor, you know, making it clean. And uh, every day there's a list of what your job was, and if you if you were, they would say buckets, and that would mean you have to go in the back of the, behind the um, store, basically, and make about 10 buckets full of hot water and bleach uh, and for the mopping at the end of this. And there was this, in this back room, there was these lights that hung down, like two lines came down, and then the lights went across. And there was this tradition of taking the empty gallon bottles of um, bleach, and teeing them up, and kicking them, and trying to kick it over the, the light, you know, and then you score. And so, one guy was doing it, and he put down his empty bottle of bleach, and he turned around and walked three steps back to get in position. And the dumbest thing I ever did was take that empty bottle and put a full bottle there. And so he kicked it, and it popped the top off and sent a geyser of bleach into his eyes. Jesus. Oh, and uh, I got fired, and I thought I had blinded the guy, but I did not. He recovered. Okie dokie. Um, <laughs> if, if we you remember asking you that, <clears throat> I don't remember
1: that story. There must be another dumb thing. I mean, <laughs> not that that's... Not phenomenal. There's a lot of sixteen. Come on. Are you telling me there's been nothing done since the No, early I said there's a there's, there there's if you want <laughs> uh, if we could pop the lights up and there are there are a couple of couple of roaming mics if people have questions. Questions would be great. Anything you want. I see a hand up there. There's a mic coming towards you. Uh here it comes. Yes. Hi Mike. Um just wondering. Obviously after Nine Dragons there's a massive shift in Manny and Harry's relationship. Um, how did that grow for you as a writer and do you feel that the TV show, um, both the Bosch series and the Bosch legacy, is doing justice to that relationship because I have to say when it's between Manny and Harry they're the, some of the most emotional scenes in the TV show but the relationship in the books is a bit more fractured, I believe, between the two of them, and it's a bit more difficult. Would you agree with that, or would you say
0: that... Yeah, no, I think, yeah, i agree with that for sure. Um, in the books, it's, it's, I mean, in the show, we, you know, I'm not the only writer, there's eight writers, and we talk about that all the time, and, and we kind of know that's the emotional core of the show, and... Um, and we have to keep that going and in fact my favorite uh, i think it's been on uh, eight seasons now if you include book shows and by far my favorite um moment in all the episodes is this long shot no dialogue and it's not even from a book but it's when he goes to school and gets her out of class and tell her her mother's dead and it's just a scene where they hug and uh, I, yeah, I'm getting choked up now. It's just such a good scene and that kind of encapsulates their relationship. And so I think it is much more uh, closer and much more emotional on the show than in the books. Um, but I have used Maddie to save Harry and save the series twice. One when he found out he had her and one uh, in Nine Dragons when her mother dies and, uh, and and she has to come and live with Harry. Once again, her coming to live with Harry, even though the relationship is a little bit more strained in the books, it's it's definitely kinda of saved his life in pa- in the pages, but also in, in my creative mind that I, I knew now I could maybe go another five years with him and then yeah, then that five years came and went and I found another way of rejuvenating. But there's moments when you when you're lucky enough um, you know, to have an ongoing series now it's 30 years old, you need these moments where the, the path changes direction, and uh, I've used Maddie at least twice to make major course corrections.
1: Yes, any other questions? Yes. I'll hand up there and a hand at the back. Something being waved. Was that a cap? A, cap. a flag? Uh, yes. Thank you very much. Um, so, the first couple of books that we find Harry, um, the subplot is him finding, first of all, his, the story of his mother, and then the story of his father. There see, there's seems to develop across the first few books, really. Um, was that planned from the start, or did it... Did it sort of happen book by book? Because it, it fits really well. But I wondered if you had that kind of multi-novel arc before you started.
0: <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, all you want to do with a first novel is get it published. And you have no idea what will happen, whether the one, another one, anything like that. Um, so you throw everything in, uh, you know, the saying everything but the kitchen sink into, into a first novel. And uh, I... I was really basically just picking things that either influenced me or were opposite from me, because when you're writing it, you don't know if it'll ever be published, so you might as well make that you know, year, two years, three years, whatever it takes, make it you know, fun, make it interesting. And so I wasn't like writing about myself, I was writing about someone. Anytime I had to kind of pick something, I picked something opposite from me so I could explore it. And I was also um, in that way, was very clear at the time James Elroy was becoming a very famous uh, writer and, you know, with profiles of him and all this stuff and, and it was the psychology is pretty clear that he's writing because of the trauma in his life of his mother being murdered. And I just took that and said, Well what about a guy who solves murders, particularly murders of women, uh, because he lost his own mother that way. It was just that. And um, I, you know, I did have the secret idea that if this got published and it went well, I could write the next book would be him solving his mother's murder. And my editor at the time said, yeah, we want more books about Harry Bosch, but but hold off on solving them. You know, use that as a motivating force in other books before you get around to solving uh, his mother's murder. So I, you know, I extended that and kind of built this uh, ongoing story. But it was not a master plan at the beginning.
1: Yes, was there one at the back? Don't know where the mic is. Yeah, hand up at the back. Um, Hi Michael, I don't want to bring the mood down, but is it unthinkable to you that Harry Bosch might just end at the end of one of your books? He is 72, and since I couldn't bear that either, is is there a vault somewhere with the book in it where Harry Bosch comes, at the, comes to an end, like Agatha Christie did with with Poirot and Marple, where we see the final end of his story at some
0: point. Um, I hope so. I mean, I think you know. My, I know it's not a uh, something people like or want, or I I really want. But if my goal is to kind of show a complete life, I think I should show that. Um, you know, I've been sitting up here crowing about how my books are con- very contemporary and said in the year that I write them. But, you know, that's the way I'm going now. Um, at some point I could, uh, for lack of better words, kill Harry Bosch off, but go back and and write other stories about him earlier in his life. I could make that shift if I want to. but. Um, He's, he's older than me, uh, but I do actually I don't regret that I made him age in real time because I really like exploring what he faces now, um, you know, and, and and what he can still give and what he can still do. But um, you know, I I don't plan too far ahead, um, so I don't know what that book is that you're talking about. But I I would like to write it. You know, I would like to end, end the story.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: No more questions. They'll
1: no, yeah, loads. <laughs> no, one there and another one. Just uh, go It's got Harrison Ford, and um, I'm fascinated that you can't get Hollywood and/or Harrison Ford to do the film with 160-minute length.
0: Uh, Why not? That was hard. Also, this was um, you know the dawn of. Law and Order and, and lots of crime shows. So at one point, um, when a uh, high up uh, person in the studio, it was Paramount Studios, when they, they basically told me, we can't make money on cop movies anymore because you can turn on the TV at any time of the, any day, any night and, and see cop shows. Um, so we're not gonna make this. And, and I said, well, can I have it back? And they said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to kind of ace Harry had to sit on a shelf for a number of years before then I could get him back. I remember,
1: again, I, I don't
0: know I'm making this up,
1: but I'm just, I just remember you telling me that uh, you, you never had a fixed idea of who would, you know, Harrison Ford might play Bosch or whoever would play Bosch. And then one day you were watching TV and you saw Bosch. You went, he's Bosch. He's the guy I've always had in my head. And wasn't he like something to do with the OJ trial? Yeah, it's weird.
0: I I like, um, you know, writing is a lot like reading, and and the majesty of reading is creating in your head. And some people like read a character and pick like Steve, that's Steve McQueen or that's Harrison Ford. I write, I make up my characters visually in my head. And so I created Harry Bosch and I you know uh, curated him over a few books. And then uh, they, you know, during the OJ trial they brought in a DNA expert from, uh, I think, uh, uh, San Francisco and he was questioning and he looked exa- exactly like the guy I had created in my head, um, you know, but he was this prosecutor that was on TV and uh, his name was Rock, Rothney Harmon. Rockney, Rockney Harmon. And, uh, and he was, in the early days of DNA, he was like the California expert. So they, in other words, they, LA County didn't have a guy, LA, you know, it's a big city, but they didn't have a guy as good as Rockney Harmon. So they brought him in to, uh, you know, to handle a DNA expert and question him in that trial. And anyway, so that's like, whatever, 25 years ago. And he has since retired, but now he's an expert for hire. And he has a website where he says he's a happy bot. Because <laughs> somehow these questions come up at these things, and he found out. Oh, like, so he found out? Yeah. Have yeah. you I mean, tried to track him down? I didn't want to track him down, because he might want something from me. <laughs> he has tried to track me down, and I just haven't responded to him. Rodney. Yeah, Rodney
1: probably they me, not me. Um, yes, and there was another, yes there's a fine hand thrust, thrust into the air. Yes.
0: Kia ora Michael, uh, thank you for all the wonderful reading over the years. Um, I was curious, the thing that made you love crime fiction when you were reading those Raymond Chandler novels after watching the film and made you want to be a crime writer? How has that changed now throughout your career? Has it evolved the things you love about being a crime writer now, the things that keep you doing it so excellently every year? Are they the same or are they different to when you started? Um, a lot of it, you know. By the way, I should mention that because of the connection to Agatha Christie, those were the initial books that my mom would read and, and hand down to me. So that there was a Agatha Christie foundation to it, and then from there I you know, um, did a lot of my own choosing and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it, it, when we, get, we have a pretty lucky job to be able to do this sit in a room and just kind of pursue something that's of interest to you um, in writing and, and the, the joy or fulfillment, I don't know what the right word is, that comes from that has, has not changed uh, or has not dropped at all. I mean, there's when you're earlier in your career, you're, there's a lot of more discovery you probably feel you're advancing faster, book-to-book, story-to-story, and that's all really great. But, you know, now I'm kind of like a senior citizen, you know, they're giving me uh, late-time achievements. Um, you, you know, yeah, I, I relish it. I, I just, I, I'm, just, I'm just so lucky. I'm the luckiest person I know, and uh, to be able to do this and, and feel... Um, you know, fulfillment. It's not a thing where I'm like rubbing my hands together and wishing I could do better. I'm, I'm happy with what I do. I, I, I can get great joy from a, a good day of writing. Um, and it's not really something you can share. You can't walk into the kitchen and, and say to your wife, "Wow, I had a great day of writing today. You know, it's just something, it's, it's very personal, it's very interior, but, but it's there, and that hasn't changed or diminished at all. I I think it's only grown uh, in the years I've been doing this.
1: Yes. Thank you. Hi, Michael. Um, I'm a Vicky Haller fan and I enjoyed the books and more recently the film and then the Netflix series. And what I would like to know, is, did you have any say in how either adaptation was made? And also, do you have a preference for the film or the series?
0: Um, well, first of I've been very lucky because both are good. Um, but TV is a writer's medium and um, movies are not. And so I had very little to do with the movie. I just got lucky because it's a good movie. Um, I, the part where I had a lot to do with was choosing who I would give that book to. Um, uh, because I had several different suitors in um, Hollywood. And um, one of them was an independent guy um, who had been a lawyer. Uh, he'd been a, a trial lawyer and he had won this big investor suit where his fee alone was like $300 million. And he said, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going to go move to Hollywood and make movies. And uh, and so he made some good movies and won the Oscar for uh, I forget the name of the film. It was a Clint Eastwood movie about a fighter. Um, and, and it won the best picture. And he produced that. And then that was like the year before uh, Lincoln Lawyer came out. And so I kind of made the circuit of all those studios that wanted the book and uh, were offering way more money than this guy was offering me. But he said, I've been in the courtrooms. I remember he said this. almost board for it. He said, I've been in those courtrooms. You got to write in the book and I get it right in the movie. And that just won me over, so I gave it to him, and he made a good movie. Um, I was, like I said, TV's more of a writer's medium, so I've been involved in that show a lot. And, you know, Matthew McConaughey, you know, I'm indebted, indebted to him because he made a good movie. It, put, it, it did a lot for me in terms of selling books. Um, but the guy in the books is a Mexican-American He's he's very L.A. and he doesn't have a Texas twang or anything like that. And so I really love who we cast and how we cast the TV show. And uh, to their credit, you know, studios are very money-oriented, but one of the first things the people at Netflix said was, we want a cast, uh, we want to go back to the book and cast the Mexican-American actor. And uh, that was music to my ears and... And the show i really like the show a lot and you know i can't say i like one better than the other because of various reasons that you know, i like them i love them both but again it comes back to tv when you can spend several hours delineating a character um as opposed to uh, you know a, 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 an hour and a half or whatever uh, any writer is going to gravitate towards that and then there's uh, sorry for the long answer um in the lincoln lawyer which is True to the book, McConaughey slash hauler is confident and slick from the first minute. He, he has the court system wired, And that was what would happen in the book. But in the TV show, he kind of goes from zero to hero. We meet him when he's down. He's just uh, taking the cure from addiction and so forth. And he's trying to find his footing. So it's a real underdog story. So that really gets me in the heart. So. I just think what we did on the show was, was really good, I'm really proud of it.
1: That guy, that guy you met at the baseball game that day, uh, and you said where do you practice, and he said I practice practice, you know, my office is my car. Yeah. Did you follow up with that guy, did he ever know about this? Oh yeah. Right. It wasn't like you just went home and went, that's a brilliant idea, and then went, hey, that's my life.
0: I stayed in touch with him, but I didn't research with him because my college roommate became a, a defense attorney. And I'd and always been in touch with them. So I took that idea, but that was a fly on the wall in my own roommate's law firm. That's how I researched. And so he's, the gimmick of working out of the car came from the other guy, but the real Mickey Holler is my friend. And um, his partner, he had a two-lawyer two office. And, uh, and that's where the stories and everything comes from but that
1: guy the game knows he's the yeah writer. he it's uh he got know, plastered on the side of his car or anything
0: no um he's no longer alive he passed away a couple oh, of years ago okay, okay. but he he knew it he uh, was proud of it he would come to book signings sometimes he even brought his driver with him um <laughs> and uh and one thing that was kind of funny was in L.A., you know, you don't really know your neighbors. Everyone's isolated and all this stuff. But when he told me I work out of my car, I must have made some kind of physical, like, this guy must be a loser type thing work And he goes, like, no, no, it's L.A.'s a big place. There's 40 courthouses, and I can cover any case anywhere, half case will travel. And we're really quite successful. In fact, I live in Malibu and my neighbor's is Matthew McConaughey. And then um, about 10 years later, his neighbor was playing the character he inspired, and they still hadn't met, so they met, actually, at the premiere of the movie. And they neighbours.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We probably have time for one more question. No pressure, it's got to be a goodie. Yeah. Yes, there's a hand up there, and the microphone is on its way to you. being been passed along. Yes. So, um, Michael, I wanted to ask... Um, would you ever consider um, expanding your brand and co-writing like some other th- authors are doing? Just asking. Well, That's
0: sure what we mean, expanding? Co-writing. Co-writing. Oh, oh, co-writing. Right. Um, Franchi-
1: do you mean kind of like franchising like certain well-known American thriller writers? So
0: James, you mean the James Patterson? There you go. There you uh, go. <laughs> go. No, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I have, like I said, I'm the luckiest guy to no, know. Uh, I, I don't think I'd want to change that. Um, I have, like, been talking to um, someone who wants to do uh, graphic novels based on some of my short stories, and that guy would take on the role of, of being, uh, you know, a creator. If I go down that path, I haven't really decided yet whether to do it or not. But um, I just like the... Um, Writing a novels, if, if they let me do it, it's pretty special, and uh, and these characters are special to me, and it would be hard to share them. Were you involved? There was a, a collection of short stories once where they teamed writers. Right. Or did you do cut it off
1: thing? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I I, and
0: I did it with Dennis Lehane. It's yeah. like who better to do it with Dennis Lehane? You know, but that was pretty hard to do. Like
1: it would work as a, but they, it never works when people go, oh, why don't you have you know, Bosch working a case with Jack Reacher sure. or something. You know what I mean? And it's, it's yeah. one of those things that's good on paper but rubbish in practice. Yeah, I like, so. Work, Dennis, Dennis
0: and I, it was him, uh, the Gennaros, and, right. and Bosch, and Bosch goes to Boston on a case. And I didn't want, uh, Dennis is a fantastic writer, so nothing personal. I, I don't want anyone else writing Harry Bosch, so how do you write a book together? Like, I'm surprised, I always get asked, when, when would Bosch and Rebus work together? And, and, uh, love Ian, we're friends, we're doing the same thing, the the father-daughter stuff. So we're so attuned, but on different sides of the pond, but we can never write a book together. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't want me writing. Well, he visits the
1: Edinburgh Festival one year to see a bit of mine.
0: that, uh, you know,
1: stumbles upon a a juggler being murdered, that kind of thing. You should do it. You should definitely do it. Um, We are, ladies and gentlemen. We are just about out of time. Much as I'd love to wind this up, by I mean, you didn't know he was here. But please welcome Rockney Harmon. I would love to do that. Uh, all, all I can do is say that we, there will, of course, be a signing. Uh, but for now, would you please join me in thanking Michael Harmon?
0: Thank you for listening to Hith Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.